Here's a few words with Jesse Bond of Southwest Fire Academy. Hey, man. How was the meeting? Meeting was good. We have a new EMR partner called Pulse Point, and they're actually going to be running a full EMR course January 16th to 24th, and that's going to be right at SFA. Obviously, we don't have anything going on this month, but our course calendar will be out the beginning of January, so we're adding some new courses, Firefighter Survival and RIT and a whole bunch of other things. Starting in January, we have a few volunteer courses scattered around the province that people can jump in on, so that would be something if current volunteer firefighters are looking for certification, they'd want want to look into that sooner than later. We got a new website rolling out early in the new year that we're going to be super excited for. And then I'm really excited to have you come and do your legacy mentor program on January 25th, but I might as well let you talk about that. Yeah, I'm excited to do it too. I think it was a great idea for us to combine these three programs and make a day of it. And obviously people can't make the trip up. We can live stream it and they can still take part in it. So it should be good. I'm looking forward to the feedback on it. I wasn't able to attend the webinar the uh, instructor one, but I watched it after and it was absolutely fantastic. Gave me a whole lot of different perspectives. So for any people that yeah want to be that senior firefighter or an instructor in the fire service, uh, definitely worth attending. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everybody and hope everybody enjoys the holidays. Welcome to Multiple Calls, episode 57. I'm Scott Hewlett. As much as we talk about all the reasons to love this job, there are a lot of reasons people feel that they don't and shouldn't. I actually won't argue that feeling, but what I will argue is that it isn't the job they've lost their love for, it's their workplace. You can be frustrated with your workplace and still love your job, but it's easier said than done sometimes. I feel you. I truly get it. The membership culture, administration, or union executive, all three or any combination, can have deep-seated issues that you can't reach and extinguish, and you shouldn't be expected to just shrug them off and let them go. Injustice, unfairness, and worst of all, malevolence, are impossible to paint over with the happy brush. They will always bleed through. We're no strangers to facing time-critical problems and trying our best to fix them, but what we don't do so well with are problems that can last for years to decades in the face of more evidence and common sense than they should ever require to rectify. It's the persistence of people-driven problems that eventually wears away at even the most resilient and allows jadedness to take hold and consume them. How do we stay strong enough to keep fighting battles without losing ourselves in the war? If you've read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, You know how unfathomable it was to read that a man that experienced such deep suffering could say, the one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. These legitimate issues you face may never change, but they don't have to change you. This isn't a promo for toxic positivity. It's a call for balance so that they don't take you down with them. This is your career and you choose it for your own reasons. You can find moments and even days to have the experience you want and feel fulfilled. Learn what you want to learn. Treat your body and mind as you would treat a loved one, and help the people that you are called to feel respected and cared for, 
Neither you nor them should suffer for what goes on in the fire service house. My guest this episode distills this down in an empathetic and inspiring way when he says, 10-year-old you would have peed themselves to be able to do this and were grumbling about having to do it at times. But once you dust off some of the bitterness and cynicism of some of the people, there's a big deep passion to be really badass at the job. So dust yourself off and do your best to have a badass career, even if it means making an ass of yourself on a regular basis along the way. If it rubs off on others, that's just icing on the cake. Here's my chat with Adam Parkhurst. Why don't you start by telling me where you grew up and what your structure of your family was? I was born in Tennessee, lived there till I was 10. We moved to Arlington, Texas after that. I've been there ever since. I live in Dallas, so I didn't move very far away, but just kind of a normal childhood. Dabbled around with sports a little bit. Never really got into anything too major. Yeah, that was about it. And how was school for you? I was not great at school. I didn't like it. It was, uh, I found it relatively boring. Typical ADHD kid. I think I barely graduated high school. After I graduated, I spent two years at the Art Institute of Dallas. I thought I wanted to be a graphic designer and figured out pretty quickly that that was not what I wanted to do. After a little bit of soul searching, figured out that I wanted to get in the fire service and uh, dropped out of college and started that process. That was in 2004, maybe 2005. Went through that. After I was already working, I ended up going back to college and getting my emergency management degree and, and then a degree in sociology. So... I liked college better the second time around, a little older, a little more mature. Plus, I was studying something that I was actually interested in. So that is helpful. What was the first exposure to the fire service? Like what put that on your radar? I don't really know exactly what it was. I didn't really know anything about the fire service. I, I wasn't like a kid who grew up wanting to be a fireman or I didn't have anybody in my family that was a fireman outside of my grandfather when he was younger, but he lived out in the middle of nowhere in Georgia. And I think you just kind of had to be on the fire department. It was one of those things. I think the first memory I have of it was kind of driving around one night after work. I worked at a movie theater, so I'd get off work at two or three o'clock in the morning, just kind of driving around. And I saw a fire truck run into a call and I thought, man, that I bet that would be an interesting job. And I just kind of sort of went from there and, and started looking into it. And the more I read into it. And the more I found out, the more interesting it was to me. So kind of starting from scratch, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anybody. I didn't, I didn't have any, any connections or anything like that. So I had to, I had to just kind of, I, I think I ended up calling like a fire station in Arlington and pestering those guys about what is this exactly? What was the process then getting up to speed and applying? It kind of varies out here. We have a lot of fire departments in North Texas. Uh, we pretty much have everything of every size from Dallas with like 70 stations down to single station departments and volunteer departments and all that stuff. So everybody's process is a little bit different. For me, I went to EMT school and then finished EMT school and went to fire academy. And out of fire academy, I started as a volunteer with the Highland Village Fire Department while I was in paramedic school. And I worked shift as a volunteer. So it wasn't like a pager system volunteer. I would go in and work shift with those guys and run calls and then finish paramedic school and then tested for the Euless Fire Department, which is where I'm currently employed. So some departments around here require you to be firefighter paramedic already. Usually the smaller departments, we're a three-station department. So it's just kind of not realistic for our department or departments our size to be able to send people through two years of schooling and they don't have their own program or anything. So they require you to already have most of your stuff. And compared to like a Dallas or Fort Worth, well, they'll send you through their own program. We're going to talk in a bit about instructing and training. 
what was your experience like in the academy and the exposure to the instructors there? Was it starting to sort of turn the wheels in your mind about instructors you thought were great, ones you didn't think were that great, how you were receiving it as a student? Yeah, so I went to a fire school that was not associated with a college. There's three fire schools around here that are associated with community colleges, and then there's a couple of independent fire schools, and I went to an independent fire school. I don't even think it's still around anymore. It's North Texas Training Academy. It wasn't nearly as organized as I've seen like Collin College or Tarrant County College, the way their process is. And it was interesting, really, because I think some of our instructors had like just finished the program and then were now working there as instructors and didn't even have full time fire jobs. So it was a little weird. But then there were also the guys who owned the school that were firefighters at a bigger department. So there was kind of a pretty large swing in the experience level with the instructors. And so there wasn't always consistency with what they would tell you. So that was definitely detrimental. I'll I'll say that I came out of fire school pretty unprepared, in my opinion. I had about enough information to pass our state test. But outside of that, if it weren't for the time at Highland Village Fire Department that I got after I got out of fire school, I don't think I would have been very prepared because that was an interesting department to be on at the time because they were one of the few combination departments still in the local North Texas area where you weren't having to drive an hour and a half to get somewhere. And so there were a number of young, really fired up men and women there that were trying to get jobs other places. And it was kind of a a foot in the door department for them. They were working as volunteers or some of them as part-time. And so most of us would just go out and get with the full-time guys and we'd just go do a bunch of training. That was really the best experience for me coming out of school was having these individuals who could mentor me and, and being surrounded by individuals who wanted to do the job and get better at the job and wanted to train and wanted to learn as much as they could. And there were a couple of guys who were part-time there who worked for some relatively busy departments. So they had a a lot of information that they could share, which was nice. Would you say your rookie years then were pretty good or what's your perception of the rookie years? I guess realistically, I had two rookie years and they were probably about as diametrically opposed as you could get. Highland Village was, since I was a volunteer, I guess the expectation level was a lot lower. They were just kind of happy to have us there. And so it really almost didn't even qualify as a rookie year. There wasn't like an expectation book or a rookie book or any of the stuff really associated with being a rookie. It was sort of do what you want. Thanks for being here. Run some calls. I got a great opportunity in some of it because I was put into situations probably before I was really comfortable doing them because just because of the limited personnel at times, I can remember making calls to the city of Louisville on multi-alarm structure fires. And it would be like me and another person that had been there like six weeks and we were on like the air truck or something. And we had to go over there and kind of figure that out on the fly was, it was nice because it, it forced me into uncomfortable situations. And I made a lot of mistakes obviously and learned from those. And then in, in Euless, when I started in Euless in 2007, they had a reputation for being very, very hard on rookies. So coming into that department, this was something that I had heard that, hey, these guys are going to be tough. That's a really hard department. They wash a lot of guys out. So coming into it, having a little bit of experience, it was good. But I found that kind of the reason that they were hard on rookies wasn't so much that they were mistreating them as they just had pretty high expectations of people. They really expected you to fulfill the rookie role where it was, you're here way before everybody else, sweep, mop, have the trucks clean and inventory before everybody gets on, and then we'll start our day. And, and so it was more of a traditional rookie 
experience. We've really progressed a lot more. We still hold a lot of that true, but the younger guys have gotten a lot more hands-on with training newer guys. I, I would say there was kind of a 50-50 mix with a lot of the members at that department. I, I started on a shift that was a lot of older guys. I think there were like three of us with under five years, and then the rest of them were 10-plus year guys. And so most of them were not as hands-on. It was kind of like, here's your district map. Here's your protocol book. Here's your truck inventory. Get out there and go learn all this stuff. And a couple of the younger guys get out there and work with you or whatever. So it was kind of different. And we've changed a lot now that we've kind of figured out that maybe leaving people to their own fruition, though it has been successful in the past, we can turn out a better product if we get a little more hands-on. Plus, I think that's just sort of the shift in the fire service as a whole is that we're moving away from, at least what I've seen, moving away from the sink or swim mentality to really, hey, how can we help build you up? And we're going to help you be as successful as you can be, and which I think is good. Did you get into instructing in your department before you went back to school and focused on the topics you did? Really kind of my path into instructing. I became a field training officer, paramedic field training officer in like probably 2010. So I did that pretty quickly and maybe 2011. And I had started me and another guy, he's now our EMS chief. He and I started doing case reviews. We would look at a handful of calls and present them to all the shifts. And that was kind of my first introduction into official instruction outside of just mentoring and small classes and stuff. I kind of caught the bug for it. I really enjoyed the process of diving deep into things. And I've always been a, a pretty big reader, but it was just sort of whatever tickled my fancy, I guess, and direct it towards something I think was a little bit better. So that was kind of my first foray into formal education I ended up teaching at Tarrant County College and then obviously as on the paramedic program, and that's a lot more official. And, and then teaching CEs to other fire departments, which is, I don't know if it's harder or easier to teach other fire departments or your own department, but going out and presenting yourself as a, a subject matter expert to individuals who also are in the same field is a bit concerning. I think if you take it seriously, it forces you to, to make sure that you have not only read and understand the material, but digested it in a way that you can make it palatable and understandable, especially as you're getting into stuff that is a little more complicated and people don't necessarily, you know, the big, why do we have to learn this stuff? We've been doing this. I know my job, I this, that, and the other, and presenting it in a way that it's, it's not only enjoyable for them to learn, but they're also able to go out and see a way to apply it relatively quickly. And that's one of the things in adult education that I learned as I studied more and more about how adults learn is for working professionals, being able to understand and immediately apply or at least see how they can apply the new material into their daily life is one of the most important things. Whereas when I teach paramedic school, those kids are there. They're a trapped audience. They have to listen to what I have to say. And they're trying to get through to complete a course or pass a test or get a job. So they're going to be as engaged as they can be. But when you're teaching working professionals, a lot of times they're told they have to be there. They don't want to be there. They've got other things they need to do. You know, it's the typical, we got 24 hours in a day and 30 hours worth of stuff we got to get done. And so if you can present it in a way that they actually want to be there and, and can apply it, I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I learned and was probably one of the more difficult things to learn how to apply because the teaching process is relatively easy. I mean, you just present material and we've all seen every end of the spectrum on education. You've got your PowerPoint karaoke 
where they just get up there and read you the lectures. You know, my wife joked about when she was in college that there was a professor that she had that had written the book for the class. And each day he would just, the lesson was him reading from the book. And I was like, well, I would just read the book and not go to class. So the point to instructing is to take the material and then present it in a way that people can use it. Going to bad classes, that's a morale killer. Guys are, oh, every Thursday or whatever, we have to go to class and it's going to suck. They're going to grumble about it. It's like the framing bias thing. It's how you present it. If we have to go train, if we have to go to this class, then people are typically not going to want to do it. Yeah. Hey, we have to go to this class today. It's going to suck compared to Hey man, this is going to be really good. The instructor gives a shit and we're going to get out there and we're going to learn some stuff. And we're going to be able to apply it. And we're going to get better at a job. And I think we have a unique field in the sense that nobody's here on accident. Nobody like got voluntold to be in the fire department. Everybody who started, they're here because they want to do the job. And we always joke on interview panels is it's like, We'll ask why the fire service, why do you want to be in the fire service? And they always say, oh, it's because I want to help people. And we're like, well, that's a crappy answer. Like, obviously you want to help people. The real answer is, is you want to do cool shit. And this job is full of cool stuff that we get to do. I mean, we get to run into fires and cut up cars and do rescues and even medicine. If you're interested in medicine, like it's cool. If we can uncover the 10 year old and everybody that we get to ride on fire trucks and do cool stuff like 10 year old. You would have peed themselves to be able to do this. And we're grumbling about having to do it at times. So, so I think, I think it's nice because this is a career field that once you dust off some of the bitterness and cynicism of some of the people, like there's a big, deep passion to be really badass at the job. And I think that's one of the keys to being whatever level of educator you are, whether you're training, involved in training, building training, writing classes is to figure out how to bring out that fire and fan it and and stoke it up so that people are leaving whatever thing they're better, but they're also fired up. We used to have a medical director. I'll just be open about this. I really enjoy medicine. I teach paramedic school. I like medicine. I know that's sort of a, like a blasphemous thing to say in the fire service. I know that not everybody likes that since I've promoted, I promoted back in March. I haven't been on an ambulance in seven months and I'm probably the only person in the history of the fire service that sort of misses being on an ambulance. But we had a medical director that when I started was so passionate about the job that he would come in and teach these classes. And he would end with basically saying, you need to be so good that uh, he had a, a, a phrase that was pretty funny. He would say, when you have a patient that is dying and your hands are shaking, then you need to have immediate testicular hypertrophy. Boom, big balls. (laughs) And I always thought that was really funny, but he was so passionate and he delivered these things in such a way that I know we would leave class and we'd be like, man, I'm ready to set the world on fire. And he's since moved on. And and that's one thing that those of us that have been around a little bit are like, man, I feel like that's missing. We've lost a little bit of that. You don't notice how much that's involved. He was the guy who really turned around medicine in the Northeast Tarrant County area. He came in and was medical director for a bunch of different departments and really took a bunch of leaps forward. And I think that passion that he had for it and the passion to make people better is what drove so much of that. It becomes infectious chronologically then you went back to school and focused on disaster organizational sociology human performance and adult education was this sort of experience what directed you in that to want to focus more and dig deeper i don't know exactly what was the impetus for me returning to college i think it just was an opportunity 
I joke with one of my friends that after watching the movie Battleship for the third time on shift, I figured I'd go to college or something. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, I went to University of North Texas, did emergency management, just because that was kind of a, a related field. And here in the state of Texas, if you do a related field bachelor's degree, you get your tuition raved waived at state university. So between tuition reimbursement through the city and tuition waiver through the state, it was like pretty much like getting a free education. So I was like, well, this would be all right. Emergency management, I can use it. It's relatively interesting. University of North Texas is one of the best schools for emergency management. It was interesting and it wasn't necessarily things that I could apply at my level as a firefighter, but it it allowed me to look behind the curtain a little bit. And now I could understand how things were working at a, a much higher level than what I was involved in. But the big thing that I did see was most of the people who were writing the articles or teaching the classes for emergency management were sociologists. And it made sense because it's the the study of how people and organizations and groups think and react. And that's really what you're trying to do with emergency management at a organizational level instead of a response level is – how do we evacuate? How do we prepare? How do we get people to prepare? How do we do all that? So you're trying to influence larger groups of people to, to behave in a way that you would like and that would benefit them. I got an opportunity to pursue a master's degree, and I decided instead of pigeonholing myself in public administration degree, I went and got a sociology degree because I figured it would help me a little bit more. And so that kind of drove the sociology stuff. And plus the fire department, we're teams. That's what we do. We're, we're small teams, big teams, and we operate as a team and teams at their core, they're groups of people. To me, if you learn how to direct behavior or how people are going to react or how to build culture or, or things like that, then it's going to help you be a better leader, better teammate and all that other stuff. Plus it was the sociology classes that I took in emergency management were interesting because it was like disaster sociology and organizational behavior and mass movement and all this other stuff that was fairly interesting. The educational aspect was more and more, and the human performance aspect was more and more just as I was teaching, I, I sort of started looking at a lot of times in the fire service, the way that we teach or how we pick a teacher seems to be like, hey, this guy's good at this, so we're going to have him teach it. And then we never really understand how the process of teaching works. Like my youngest brother, before he went and joined the Coast Guard, got his degree in education, his bachelor's degree in education, and he had to take all these classes on how kids learn and coaching and teaching and all this other stuff. And I got thinking about it. I was like, man, I, I teach college. And I've never taken an education class. Like, I don't actually understand how teaching works. I just am up here talking. And I just went and bought a book on adult education and read it. And I was like, man, there's some stuff that maybe not doing wrong, but I could do definitely do better. It's learning the aspects of like the big thing being adults want to be involved in their education, especially in a career field. They want to be involved building it. Hands on is more important. And then how can they apply it immediately? And it needs to be quick, usually five to 10 minutes at a time. We don't need these long, overwhelming lectures or anything like that, which I think is the downside to the way that we do teach a lot of times with CEs is CE is hour based. It's not material based. It's not like, hey, I need you to learn these five things and show competence in it. And that's your CE. It's I need you to sit in a room for three hours once a month. And that's all I care about. And I think that's actually detrimental because there's really no metric for if people are taking anything out of it. They're just it's just time. And and now more and more we're moving towards I think COVID was a big contributor to that, moving more and more to online based CEs. And I think that's not good. We use a program and it's 
the way it started was smart where it said, hey, we're going to use this program and it's going to cover all our hours. And that way we can teach whatever we want in person and our hours are covered for medicine and we don't have to worry about it. But now that's pretty much all we do. And I don't know if this is an industry secret, but nobody's watching the classes. They're just hitting play and then coming back and hitting skip or next or whatever and then taking the test at the end. And so nobody's gaining anything except for hours. So it's it's purely a it's purely a checkbox thing. And and I think that's dangerous, especially in a field where competence is the difference between really positive or really negative outcomes. It's easy to, from what I've seen, it's easy to feign competence and it's easy to believe that your competence level is higher than it is. I would say that almost every firefighter, if you ask them because of the nature of how we are, if you said, hey, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the best firefighter in the country, how good do you think you are? And I would say that almost no one would rate themselves below a five. And I would say that probably no one would rate themselves below a seven. Everybody that I've talked to thinks they're good at their job, whether they are or not. I think that becomes difficult because if people already think they're good at their job and then you put basically the the only thing that they have to do to maintain their hours is watch a video, then they're not going to get any better because they're not going to pursue anything outside of that. And that's kind of a large sweeping statement. And I know that's not the case with everybody. And, and we've seen, I think, a big sea change in the fire service over the last probably 10 years where there's more and more very passionate instructors coming out and teaching things. We've seen these podcasts explode where there's people coming out and having these conversations about how do we grow? How do we get better? How do we learn? They're willing to share their experiences. Whereas I know before it seemed like some of the older individuals in my department, because of the nature of the way things were done before, didn't want to share information as much. And they got a lot of great experience but they didn't really necessarily want to share it because now you know what I know. And it was very cutthroat at times, you know, like the promotional process. I don't know how it is everywhere, but when I started, there was some pretty cutthroat stuff going on with promotions. And there was a guy that made fake quizlets and made them public. So it was like he put the questions, but put wrong answers on there in case one of the other people found his quizlets or thought they found them, they would have the wrong answers. I was like, I was asking him about it. I was like, dude, how long did that take you? He's like, oh, it took me hours and hours. I was like, so you spent hours and hours handicapping someone maybe instead. He's like, yeah, it was pretty dumb. Right. But that was the nature of it at the time. And so, so if you don't really pay attention to it or look at it, it's going to continue on. It's a great spot for me to sort of jump in and maybe have you expand on a couple of things. Cause what I'm hearing is it's all the human aspects of everything that gets in the way. So ego gets in the way, shame and guilt gets in the way, ignorance gets in the way. Really, as an instructor or a trainer or teacher, or however you want to frame it, someone who passes on information, there's really so much more involved in understanding all the barriers and how you get around that more so than there is actually trying to get the information into people's minds. To a degree, that is true. Yeah, there's a lot of walls for some people, for sure. Again, like I said, I think we're going through a sea change in the fire department where a lot of that's going away a little bit. I mean, it, it will probably never go away, but I know like a lot of these younger kids coming in, they want to learn. They're going to classes on their own. They're paying for conferences on their own. They're doing all this stuff and they're like trying to find as much information as they can. And I, I don't know if that's a generational thing or it, exactly what it is, or if it's just that it started to domino in that direction. So I, I think that they have fewer walls. I think one of the hardest things I've found that education-wise, teaching-wise, 
and mentoring and things like that. It's not the less than five year guys or the newer guys that are hard to teach. It's the 15 plus guys because they've seen it. They've done it. They like the way they do it, whether it's new information or a new way to do something or whatever. A lot of times, like you said, the walls are up and they don't want to hear it. The example that I think is really the best display of that is when all those NIST studies came out where they were using reproducible numbers and real science and measuring all this stuff about spraying water into windows. And collectively as the fire service, everybody pretty much went, well, that's crap. We're not going to do that. That's not true. I've seen it push fire. I've seen this. I've seen this. I've seen this. And they said, no, it doesn't happen. It doesn't matter where the water comes from. It's water on the fire. That's the goal. Fast water on the fire. And it takes a long time to turn a big ship. And, and this is a very big ship. We saw that, whether it be ignorance or ego or whatever it is, but people just didn't want to listen to it. And, and I think some of it was lack of belief. Hey, I don't believe that that's true. But I, I would say from an ego standpoint, it was a lot of people saying, I'm not going to spray water from outside. I'm going to go inside because that's what firemen do. I'm a big, tough fireman and I'm going to go in there and I'm going to just get my ass kicked, burn my helmet up and fight the fire like a man. And so I think that's a difficult wall to get over, too, is having people willing to listen to something that may be the opposite of what they believe to be true and what they believe to be true in themselves. And especially if it's being sold as a complete alternative action to interior firefighting, whereas if it's framed, I guess I would say as it should be, as an action of opportunity it's not detrimental. You are transitioning inside. I mean, it was. it is called transitional attack. You're going from one space into another. I think a lot of the balking came from, well, we're just going to be outside throwing water in windows now. And now we get into UL and FSRI and the water mapping and cooling as you go and cooling smoke as you go, surface cooling. I mean, there's so much more to incorporate. But I think on many things, we're very quick to say, I see myself standing outside putting water in the window. I'm not doing that. It's simplified too much in people's minds and they don't dive deep enough into where and how it should be used. Yeah. And it's funny too, because the transitional attack, it didn't have a name before, but like when I first started in like 06, I can remember going on fires and they were like, Hey, there's fire coming out of that window, hit it real quick, knock it down while we're getting ready to go in. But it didn't have a name. It was just opportunity. Hey, I'm doing my 360, knock that down real quick and then we'll go in. Then somebody put a name on it and they went, wow, I'm not doing that. I think that's funny. And and like you said, with the U.S. studies and all this other stuff, I mean, they're really getting pretty deep into a lot of this stuff. I was watching a, a lecture the other day. I don't I don't remember the guy's name, but he was from one of the Nordic countries. He was presenting at a conference and he was using a fog machine and video and the way that just the water entering the room, the way it changed pressures and stuff like that. And so I, I think we're getting a little more scientific with it instead of just wet stuff, red stuff, run through building spray water on fire. And I think that's good. I, I think we're headed in the right direction, but we just can't become too cerebral. We have to be basically like a scholar warrior, intelligent, and know why we're making the decisions we make, but also be capable and physically capable, emotionally capable, mentally capable, whatever it may be. Looking at a lot of that stuff, I think is not necessarily going to change all the way that you make decisions, but it, it does change the understanding. At least it's the same as like learning hydraulics. You learn all the stuff about hydraulics. And then when you pump a fire, you just pump it at whatever 120 or 100 or whatever your presets are, right? You have your field rules and, and that's how you do it. But you know how you got to that answer. It, it would be really easy. Like I could teach my six-year-old how to pump a fire truck. It's pretty damn easy. But the understanding 
should something go wrong or anything like that is where it becomes more complicated. I think that's where we're headed with a lot of this measurement and water mapping and, and understanding pressures and flow paths and all that stuff. I, I think that's where we're headed with that is, is it's not necessarily going to drastically change the way we do things. It's just going to help us understand why what we're doing works and then help us shed some of the things that maybe don't work. Yeah, the integration of anecdotal and empirical. Yes. Mm-hmm. And do you see with maybe guys like like us that are a little farther into their careers, if we didn't have the requirements that the newer generations do to get on, so they're forced to take more courses to get on, right? They also have more information available and they have more conferences and that available too. I guess what I'm thinking of is the more courses you are forced, even if you're forced to take them as they're mandatory to get on, whether they're forced or you want to take them on your own, there are a lot more opportunities to be exposed to things and maybe fail at them, make mistakes. And it keeps you humble, realizing that there's always more to learn. Whereas if you haven't been sort of pushed into that before in your career, because it wasn't necessary, then really all you're going off of is the calls you've gone on and how they've gone. And then I guess that ties into Aaron Fields talking about mediocrity wins most of the time, because if you think well, I've been to all these calls. Those have been my, my experiences. They've been successful. Then that ties back into you saying that, and I think you're accurate about people thinking that they're better than they are uh, because you haven't necessarily had enough heavy calls to really have that epiphany. Not to complicate it too much, but I guess you taking your EMT and teaching the medical side of things, I know for myself, the years I spent as a medic, it just helped me see the job better and myself better and see where I was weaker and could get better. So it it kept that humility going. Your time as a medic, your time going to school, would you say that leads to you having that humility and understanding where you're actually at? And do you think that's what other people are missing when they balk at further education? Further education, I think a lot of it just like there's some people who just don't buy it. We get additional points on our promotional exams. If you have a degree like five extra points for a bachelor's degree. And there's still people who won't go because they'll sit there and tell you, well, it doesn't going to school doesn't make you a better leader. What I usually say is that it may not necessarily make you a better leader, but it'll make you better at a lot of the things like reading and writing and comprehension and delivering a message and presenting things. And a lot of times I think the biggest positive with a lot of it is surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals. And so you all just kind of stoke each other's fire because these are people who are also pursuing the same things. And so you can sit and share experiences and kind of get each other fired up about it. And the call volume thing, I'll tell people all the time, we're just not going to run enough calls to be as good as we could be because unless you're really dissecting every one of the calls, outcomes are what they are. I've said before, are we good or are we lucky, right? Is it going right because we did everything right? Or because that's just the way it turned out. The example that I look at is how many times do we see firemen on roofs still without SCBAs on? And they've been successful at it a hundred times before until the one time that they're not. We kill guys. Seems like every couple of years somebody gets killed on a roof without an air pack on. It's sad to me because whether their organization or they themselves or whatever, and I'm not here to, to blame them or point fingers or anything like that. I'm just using that one particular example is they've been successful with that operation 100% of the time until they weren't. It's easy to say that your success is because it's the right thing to do until it's catastrophically not the right thing to do. There's that famous lecture, the normalization of deviance, talking about 
And that was one of the Challenger explosions was one of the things I had to study in school talking about the O-rings and the pressure on the O-rings and they were exposed to heat, but they were never supposed to be exposed to heat. So they were saying, well, I guess they can be exposed to heat and not to dive too deep into that. But ultimately, they just kept letting themselves get away with more and more and more and more. And it was 100 percent successful until it was catastrophically not successful. I think that's what we look at. And in the fire service, we're more willing to share not only successful stories, but I think more and more people are willing to share failures that they've made. Hey, we did this and it did not work. Or this is how this happened. The secret list and all that other stuff. We can't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. It's one of those things that humility is a big aspect of it. But I think more and more, it's just realizing, it's it's just like an awakening of, hey, our fires are going down. I don't care what department you work for. You're not fighting as many fires as they were in the 80s. There's very few departments that are just covered up in fires and covered up in crazy calls. It always seems like it because you'll see. I live in the city of Dallas. and you know, I see these guys running all the time. And in my head, I'm like, oh, man, they're just getting after it constantly, just fighting fire. And then you talk to them and they're like, oh, you know, it's, it's definitely more than, than I make. But it's not like four or five fires a day or whatever, which is a ton. And and so you just can't run enough calls. And I've, I've even said like transfer service EMS runs a lot of calls, but they're probably not that good at paramedicine. It's what you do with the calls that you make and with the calls that other people make and the experiences that you share that, that really culminates into improving. So I think we're getting a lot better at that. I, I would say kind of the downside to that, though, is there's such a flood of information now that it may be – it's hard to vet all of it and what's good and what's not good because I don't know what you, what all your experiences are with like writing articles, but the articles that I've written, there's no vetting process. It's like, hey, I wrote this article and they say, cool, it reads well, we'll publish it. Right. No peer review. Yeah, there's no zero peer review. And I've seen some of these articles come out, and I know that everybody's writing them from a place where they're trying to improve the fire service. But there was one notoriously a few years ago, and I don't remember what department it was or where, but it was basically an argument for never entering a structure unless you 100% know that there's a victim inside. And it, it was published, and it created, probably justifiably so, this massive kickback. People were, I mean, people were mad. And it, it's one of those things that it's like, well, that that got published and that's that guy's opinion. And so if there hadn't been such a kickback, that could have been something that somebody latched onto and went to their department and said, hey, this guy over here at this big department said he doesn't think you should go interior unless you're 100 percent sure there's somebody there. So we're going to start doing that. Right. And so I think that's where it becomes dangerous is if you don't take it all with a grain of salt and make sure that A, is this correct? And B, is this correct for us because not everything I work for a suburban fire department and the way that they do stuff in Baltimore is not always going to transfer to an 1100 square foot single family home in Euless, Texas. It's not going to always be exactly the same. That's where I think it becomes dangerous at times is if you don't vet it and you don't figure out, is this true and will this work for us? Yeah. I guess the blessing of having all this information that we've never had before is that in amongst all that, there is a lot of gold. The downside is there's a lot that's not. So how do you vet it? How do you discern what you should be looking at and what you shouldn't, what you should hold on to, what you shouldn't? And that's not only hard for people on the job, but even harder for people that are just getting in that are they're sponging up information, whatever crosses their desk, they're ingesting it and integrating it. And then how do you teach that out of them? So that's one thing I've tried to pass on to students is you need to look at a number of different sources. Again, this is an academic way of approaching things. <laughs> 
to try and see if there's a consistency, right? And the more you see that it's consistent and higher and people are speaking of this, and then you can put some weight to it. But until then, you just can't pick up any article and read it and think it's worth reading. Some of it's just rag. Yeah, some of it's just noise. I think ultimately kind of what we see, though, is that the cream rises to the top. Like if you see somebody out there consistently teaching at conferences and classes and lectures and whatever, and you consistently see them out there and they're consistently drawing a crowd, they probably have something of value that they're presenting. I mean, there's a number of names. You brought up Aaron Fields. He's I'm, I'm going to his Nozzle Forward class next month. It's going to be sold out, right? And it's it's sold out every time, everywhere he goes, pretty much. That's a guy who his material is is probably pretty well vetted because he's consistently delivering it and people are consistently saying, hey, this this seems useful. So that's kind of something I usually tell people is like, be careful where you get your information. But if it consistently seems like it's good information, there's probably at least some value in it. If a lot of people think it's valuable, it's probably valuable. And again, is this where guys are missing out on not focusing on maybe what can be the academic side of the job, right? There are very simple things. I mean, the basics win the majority of the time. They can always be depended on. And when things go bad, you should go back to the basics and you should be a master of the fundamentals. And like you said, pumping your truck can be simple. Forcing a door can be simple. Throwing ladders can be simple, but it doesn't mean that the concepts to everything are simple and understanding everything at a deep level is is simple. So is this where we're missing out, especially as we get more and more information and more and more research is coming out? If you're not aware of how to approach the academic side of things, you're not fully understanding what the job's about and that hinders how good we can get. I think you bring up a good point about the basics win and, and it's all simple. It's simple if if you've pushed it to be simple. You watch professional athletes and somebody in the NFL is the worst guy in the NFL is one of the best football players in the world, right? And they make it look so easy. And we yell at the TV and, oh, you should have made that catch and whatever, blah, 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 and all this stuff. But it's, remember there was an argument a few years ago about whether Alabama could beat, like, I think it was the Detroit Lions had lost like 20 games in a row or something. They were like, you think Alabama could beat them? And they were like, unequivocally, no, there's no chance because as good as this college football program is, this professional program is significantly better. And sitting from the outside and looking in, it's like, well, it looks that we don't see that big of a difference. But when you're in it, you realize how big of a difference there is. So you're forcing a door is incredibly easy if you know exactly what you're doing and you've practiced it so many times that that it's just second nature. It's like driving a car. We don't go through a million processes when we drive a car. We don't have to go, okay, foot on gas. That car is slowing down. I'm going to let off the gas. We don't do all that stuff. Driving a car is relatively easy, but it's because we've practiced it, practiced it, practiced it. And so I, I think that's where it, it becomes focus on the basics, focus on the stuff that works, not necessarily do it the same way every time, but at least have a, a pretty good plan. And that way, if you do have to deviate from the plan, you have to have a plan to deviate from the plan. And, and once you have to start deviating, that's where you better know some stuff because it's about to be time to make some decisions. If you haven't at least run through some of these before then or practiced it enough to where you're not having to pay attention to the basics, then you're going to be in trouble. 
Driving is an interesting thing for you to bring up too, because it is true. I think you're speaking about one of the things you wrote about is implicit versus explicit learning. But just because you can drive a car doesn't mean you can drive a fire apparatus to an emergency scene. Whereas when we sit down and talk to rookies and when they're going to be getting into driving and you start to sit around the table and talk about driving, you realize, oh my God, this is way more complicated than I think it is when I get in the truck. There's so much more to hand over. There's a lot more to it. They almost get inundated with information because like you said, it seems simple because you're just, it's a habit. You just do it as second nature, but you don't understand everything that you've incorporated along the way to get good at that. Yeah. And then that's a good example too, because I think it even, it's funny because like I drove an engine for years as a step up driver. I drove a pumper. Then when I promoted, I got put on the, the bucket truck and it was I mean, I had guys that had been there three or four years teaching me how to drive. It would have been really easy for me to step in and say, hey, I'm the driver now. This is my truck and I've been here 15 years and blah, blah, blah. But it was a totally new apparatus. It, it drives different. It's slower. It's bigger. It, you park it different. It has different responsibilities. And so having these guys and one of them even said, he's like, it's funny, man, you trained me when I was new and now I'm training you. And I was like, yeah, man, it's, that's good. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, you don't know how to drive fire trucks. You just know how to drive your fire truck. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah. Another thing I want to touch on too that you wrote about in one of your articles, and we've sort of been talking about around it here, and you mentioned the football team and the population that they're playing against, right? So it's really what you're talking about is defining and redefining average. I believe that was one of the titles in one of your articles. So yeah, talk, just expand on that for me about defining terms that always is the starting point, right? And maybe that's a problem in the fire service too. And again, to bring fields up again, but he talks about us having a common vernacular where you go across the states, across the nation, you go to different countries, we have a different vernacular. If we had a common language, we'd understand each other better. If we are able to, when you say a term, you have the definition in your mind. When I say it, I have a different definition. So now we're already off on the wrong foot. So maybe speak to that, just defining terms and how that's important, but then also then how do we define and redefine average before we can even have conversations about getting better. Yeah, I think a great example of the terms is tanker and tender, wildland versus structural firefighting. I can't even remember the, the difference in it, but it's like for us, a tanker is a, a big truck full of water. But in, I think in the wildland, a tender is a big truck full of water. So I think one of the biggest things is uh, the way I look at what average is, is we have to kind of figure out where we are as an organization, as a team, at whatever level and figure out what that is and then figure out how to move on from there. Because if you never take the time to really figure out where you're at, it's hard to figure out how to get where you're going. If I said, hey, let's go to the beach, the first thing we would want to know is where are we, right? Because we could just start driving. Like if I head west, I will get to the beach eventually. It will take me 22 hours, but I'll get there. Right. But if I head southeast, I'll get there in four hours. Right. I mean, it's not nearly as nice of a beach, but I'll be there. And if I don't ever take the time to figure out that I'm sitting in Dallas, Texas, well, I'm going to do a lot of extra work or I have the potential to do a lot of extra work. And I, I think it gets hard to sit and define where you're at because, A, it takes time. And anytime something takes time and a lot of time, it's not necessarily that palatable and it takes buy in. And we've started implementing a little bit of this into my department. And I think nationwide, we're seeing it a lot. I think the big one that I see it with is mask up times. Is It was like, I don't know that there was ever until a few years ago, a defined amount of time 
that it should take you to put your mask on. It was kind of like, hey, you should be able to be bunked out in the truck in a minute or a minute and a half or whatever it is, right? I know for for our state test, it was like under a minute and you were on air or something like that, right? But nobody, I don't think, ever looked at it and said, how long should it take you to get your mask on? And then you start seeing this stuff move around on Facebook about mask up times. And guys are posting videos of themselves masking up. Hey, here's how I do it. Anybody got any critiques or whatever? And then all of a sudden, guys are getting their masks on in under 10 seconds with their gloves on. And and they're sharing their techniques and things like that. So we kind of collectively as a fire service took this one thing and figured out Hey, kind of the average time it should take you is 10 to 15 seconds or whatever. I don't, I can't think of the number exactly right now, but it should take you 10 to 15 seconds to get your mask on. And then people are breaking away from that and going, well, I can do it in six. And we're going, wow, how'd that guy do it in six? And then learning his techniques. And then we're seeing it with the way people throw ladders, all these other things. So I think that's the the positive side to the sharing of information and the social media and all that stuff is as a fire service, we've started looking at some of these things and, and without really knowing it, defining what our average is and then figuring out how to redefine it and say, maybe if two years ago it was taking everybody 20 seconds or 15 seconds to mask up and now it's taking everybody 10. Well, 10 is now the average. That is the time. It's not 15 anymore. You start to, to slice these seconds off. Well, five seconds on your mask up time, you save 10 seconds in your hose deployment. You save five seconds in knowing your district or whatever, or 30 seconds. Well, now you're to the victim or to the seat of the fire a minute faster than you would have been. And that's a significant amount of time. I remember arguing with a guy about RSI one time or taking someone's airway to innovate them. And he said, and I know this is a not really necessarily firefighting, but his argument was, well, we have so many hospitals around here. It's faster to just take them. And I said, well, how long can you hold your breath? How long can you go without breathing? It's the same as it only took us 30 more seconds than it should have to get in and get that person out. Well, that person was breathing superheated air and smoke for 30 more seconds. That's They died because of that. That's the difference, right? 30 seconds is a long time when you're dying. That's what time and, and time is an easy thing, I think, to average out. And that's, a, in my opinion, a good place to start because it's very quantifiable. You can look at numbers and you can go, okay, well, this takes a minute. We want it to take 55 seconds. That's easy to do, right? And then where it gets more difficult is when you start figuring out average in regard to skill sets. We expect people to know this, to be able to do this. I don't know that you could really call it defining average or whatever, but we, our organization, because I don't know how it is across the rest of the country, but here in, in North Texas, it's become pretty slim pickings for quality members. There's been a mass retirement from all the guys that got hired in the late 80s, early 90s when the ambulance service came in around here. And so there's been this huge volume of retirement and people are, departments are competing pretty heavily for quality candidates. People just aren't pursuing this career field as much and blah, 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 whatever is driving it. And so we kind of sat down, I, I ended up on the our interview board Initially, sort of as a, I wasn't really a, a participating member. They brought me on kind of to, to just help write some new questions, right? And so we uh, we sat down and, and we said, first question is, is, is how do we avoid a, a butts and seats mentality? Because we don't want that. We And I'm lucky to work for a city that supports running short instead of running 
worse, if that makes sense. Like they would rather us be three or four guys low than be full and have three or four guys that aren't worth a crap. So they said, how do we avoid that? We sat down and we said, what are we, what are we looking for? Who do we want? How do we figure out if this person is a good fit for us and if this department is a good fit for them? Because every department's different. We are what we are. If you want to go run 20 calls a day, that ain't us. If you want to go do big city stuff, that ain't us. If you want to go do wildland firefighting, that ain't us. But if you want to run aggressive fires and be aggressive with firefighting and EMS and everything else and, and run six or seven calls a day and train and do all that, well, that's we're the department for you, right? So, so we had to define exactly who we are. And then we had to define characteristics that we wanted. I don't know outside of your own interviews, how involved you've been in interview panels, but you know, there's all those questions that they bring out. And we were like, man, I don't think any of these are really exposing the individual there. We're going, you know, oh, you catch a guy drinking in the locker room and what are you going to do? Well, that's first off, that's not a problem that we have, right? We're not catching guys drinking at work. How are we really gleaning any information about this individual by pressing them right and that's just one example there's all sorts of different weird questions like that or where they're memorizing or just telling you what you want to hear yeah and you're like we're not really getting into who this person is as an individual so we sat down and we figured out we read the book all of us read the book the talent war and then looked at some other fields of how some of these other companies and other businesses questions that they asked to figure out if somebody was going to be a good fit for their organization and we kind of ended up first starting by defining eight characteristics. It's eight or 10 characteristics. I can't remember that, that we believe would be a good fit for our department. And it's things like team ability, drive, emotional resiliency, things like that. And then we started with the process of, okay, now how do we measure those? And how do we ask these people these questions? So though that's not necessarily defining average in a quantifiable number way, it's more of This is what we feel our organization is. This is what we feel the characteristics and the types of people that we employ and that we want to continue to pursue. So we sat down and we defined that. And now we have a sort of a blueprint of, hey, here's who we're looking for. And we've been relatively successful in some of our more recent hires, not to say that we weren't successful before, but that's sort of in the same path as not just figuring out, okay, our average is how fast can you put on your gear? Our average is, you know, this information, but also who are we? Like, what is our organization? What do we stand for? And also, who are we not? I think it's as important to sit down and define not only who you are as a team, as an individual or an organization, but also who are you not? Who are you not going to tolerate yourself becoming? Because then you can recognize those behaviors and stop them before they become a problem. You sit down and you say, hey, we're a department that trains hard and aggressive but we're not a department that treats guys like shit and belittles guys during training, right? So those two things don't have to exist together. You can train hard and have high expectations, but not beat guys down, right? So that's just one example of who are we, but also who are we not? Another great measurement of time coming down, you were talking about mask up times, would be the combat challenge, right? We saw the same thing. There's been a few small tweaks in the course over the years that have brought times down, but really it's just about people figuring it out and learning how to train better and get faster. So like you said, the new average is is coming down. I think it's great. It's super fascinating to me to see what we're capable of, what people in general are capable of, and how it's constantly, when Roger Bannister ran the mile and I was the first sub 
five minute mile that was like unheard of. And now it's high school kids can do it. Iliud Kipchoge or however you say his name, he just ran a sub two hour marathon, which is the most insane thing ever. Yeah. There's great videos of guys trying to run even just for a couple minutes at that pace. Yeah. It's like 14 miles an hour or something. It has bonkers. (laughs) Yeah. But it's possible. Yeah. And now it's been proven, Hey, this guy, not only is it possible in theory, that guy did it. And so, right. Let's see what happens. It's pretty damn amazing, really. And great of your department to have that acceptance that you'd rather run short than run with more butts and seats that don't belong there. Because having people that aren't prepared to be in those seats, it's not just a neutral effect. It's actually a a net negative. It actually makes it worse. We've said that often, a few guys, we've chatted and and said, yeah, we'd rather run with just three, right? Because if you give a fourth and they're not, it actually makes it worse. It's interesting. They've done studies on it and, and dropped a bad member into a productive team and it craters. It's amazing how one toxic member can bring an entire, damn near an entire organization down, but for sure can bring down a team. A very high performing team can have one bad member and all of a sudden they're dragging an anchor. It's pretty amazing. And anybody who's been in the fire service long enough has definitely seen that where you, you can point out hey, that team's not doing very good, and it's probably because of that guy. So you touched on a good point there about teaching firefighters and how it can be inhibited by basically being a jerk. Maybe you can expand a bit on that, on how there's not one-size-fits-all method of training like you've mentioned in one of your articles, but it's actually even more detrimental to give bad training or deliver it in a bad way than not doing any training at all. So to touch on that, I have to start by saying that I talked about this on another podcasts on the make do podcasts probably i don't know maybe a year ago and one of the guys i work with most of the guys were like hey man great podcast that was awesome i really enjoyed it blah 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 and i'm not tooting my own horn or whatever but one of the guys and i've worked with him since the beginning of my career and he and i have become pretty good friends and he was like hey man i gotta tell you i didn't like your podcast and i was like wow good on him to most people won't tell you that they don't like something you did. They'll usually tell everybody else and tell you, oh, yeah, it was great or whatever. And he's like, I just I he's like, the first thing is I felt like you were talking bad about our department. And I was like, well, that wasn't my intention. He's like, but the thing that got me was you talked about these guys that were he's like, you called them assholes that we had some of these assholes. And he's like, we did. But those guys built the department that you're now part of. And he's like, were there some guys who did some asshole things for sure? He's like, but there was, they also taught you stuff. And so I just wanted to address that a little bit kind of before I dive into this, because he, he did, that is a really good point that he brought up. And, and I was like, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying. It, it's not that they probably had good intentions, but because of whether the way they were reared in the fire service or the, what the expectation was, what the differences in the generation was, they did some things that were not quite so palatable, right? I mean, not to say that there are not guys out there that are just jerks for sure, but some people just do jerk things, but maybe aren't a jerk. So I I just kind of wanted to clear up that part and say, I'm not trying to say that just because you're hard on guys or, or just because this, that, or the other, that you're an asshole. And sometimes you have to be hard on people in training. But I think the biggest thing, we have to get rid of that sink or swim mentality. And we have to Make sure that guys are more concerned in the training field and in the process of either acquiring or improving knowledge that their main concern is getting it right instead of not failing. Because if you're having to be worried about whether you're going to get your ass chewed out every time you make a mistake, 
then that's what you're going to be worried about. You're going to have that noise in the back of your head. Oh, if I make this decision, even if it's a good decision, but it's a, not the the one that the instructor or the trainer would have done, am I going to get hung out? Am I going to get yelled at in front of everybody if I screw this up, right? If I don't do it right, because that's the point. We're supposed to not do it right. We're supposed If you're not pushing yourself in training and making mistakes, then you're not trying. And what keeps people from being willing to do that is being humiliated or beat down. It's like teaching your kid to ride a bike. You're not going to scream at him every time he falls off. You don't expect him to get out there. Hey, here's a bike. Go. Right. You're going to help him and you're going to encourage him. Hey, man, that didn't work. Try this. OK, you're doing that. Don't do this. Do that. Right. It, it should be more positive. And we have to get to the point where we have a, a positive environment in training. We can be aggressive and we can be hard and we can be hypercritical and all that stuff to make sure that it's getting done right. But it has to have an overall positive mentality because otherwise people aren't going to they're going to hate it. They're going to despise training. If you're setting training up for guys to fail, then they're going to hate doing it. We've all been through training scenarios like that where it just seemed like either the, the purpose to the training was to push you so hard that you threw up or that you failed or that whatever. And it's it's not fun. You're not the only thing you're getting out of it is bitterness. And if you have that overall positive attitude and we're helping to build each other up as we get better and better, we can make it harder and harder and harder. And people are going to be willing to push themselves and they're going to be willing to try things outside of their comfort zone. And they're going to be willing to fail time and time and time again until they get it right, because they know that the only consequence to them getting it wrong on the training field is that they learned a way that it didn't work. Right. Our battalion chief brought up a good point with one of our new guys was struggling with throwing a ladder a single man, 24 foot ladder throw. It was like, he was really just terrified of this ladder falling. My battalion chief was like, Hey, he came to me and he's like, I want you to take that ladder from him and drop it on the ground. I want you to stand it up and I want you to drop it on the ground, you know, make sure nobody gets hit or whatever, but, but make it fall down. I was like, okay. And so I walked over there and I took the ladder from him and I pushed it over. And he kind of had his eyes were wide. I was like, did anything bad happen? He's like, well, I mean, it fell. And could be damaged. He's, I was like, it's probably not. These ladders are tough. Did anything? He's like, no. I was like, so who cares, right? So, And then he never dropped it after that, but you could tell that he was less afraid of it happening. And I'm not saying it's okay for your ladder to fall on the fire scene or anything like that. But suddenly he was, he was able to overcome being afraid of it falling so he could focus on the other stuff. And it was like it, it removed that one little, that barrier. It wasn't weighing him down anymore. And you can use that example of if people are afraid of getting in trouble, if they're afraid of looking stupid or being ridiculed for making a bad decision in training or for doing something incorrectly in training, then that, that's all they're going to worry about. Or they're not going to do anything at all. It, we've all been in the class before where they're like, all right, who wants to come up here and try this first time? And nobody does it because nobody wants to be the guy that gets it wrong the first time. Screw it, man. Get up there and just screw it all up. And go, hey, man, I did a real bad job on that. How do I do better? Because you're going to get a little bit better and a little bit better. And that's how you get better, right? You, you have to fall a bunch to be able to, to be successful at anything. And I think when you have that positive mentality about it, not just training, but also calls, 
being able to look back and go, hey, I, I did this and this worked really well. I did this and it did not work very well. And I did this and it worked, but it could have been better. That's how we grow. I had my first real fire that I made where I was riding seat. I did something that I always said I never was going to do. And I checked on fully involved. And I've watched the videos of stuff like that. And I, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of do not say fully involved because it changes everybody's mentality that, oh, well, this fully involved. There's this is a surround and drown fire. We're not going to make any rescues or whatever. Well, it was a it was a single wide trailer on fire. We had issues with access because I was the bucket truck and we were first on and I couldn't make and we run quince. So I, I refer to it as a truck, but it's a, so we pull hose off of it, but we couldn't make the turn. So we were about 150 feet from the house. When I checked on and gave my size up, I checked on with a, a single wide trailer fully involved because there was a huge volume of fire. Got out, took the lines, made a fire attack. Well, not only was it not fully involved. It was just the front bedroom and the front living room area that were on fire, plus the car out front and the awning that was keeping everything kind of pressed down. Not only was it not fully involved, but there were two people stuck in the backyard who couldn't get out because of the fire. And there was a door closed to another bedroom that we found a dog in and the dog was alive. So if that had been a person, they could have been rescued, right? That, that's a viable closed door protected room rescue. Two people in the backyard. And I... I got away with it. I'm going to say not that it was a big deal, but me checking on fully involved, that was not a fully involved structure. It was a, a large volume of fire. And so if I didn't go back and look at that, then it would be easy for me to go, oh, yeah, whatever. But fortunately, we have a structure in my department where the battalion chief that was on scene, I talked to him about it. I said, hey, man, I checked on fully involved. It wasn't. He was like, yeah, you corrected it when you made your 360. Just learn from it. There wasn't any any ass chewing or nothing like that. It was, hey, man, glad you caught that. Let's move on, which is important. I mean, it's important because we none of us, the only day you can quit getting better at this job is when you hang your helmet up at the end and say, man, what a run, in my opinion. Maybe with the pendulum swing that we're seeing is really the fire culture itself is unique in a number of ways. But overall, the culture at large right? The population, that culture of our society is the culture that comes into the fire service. And I think we're seeing over these last number of years, it's very dualistic thinking, right? You're either that old school, harsh mentality, or you're, you're a puppy dog and you're, you're a pushover and you're super soft. Again, it's about defining terms and, and people also maybe not being able to realize that the middle is where we're trying to live, right? Where I've grown to appreciate now more and more Looking back on the older school mentality, I think I'm starting to understand it, that they just realized that the job was extremely dangerous. And so they dismissed everything else that could even be thought of because that was the most important thing to focus on. And they realized that you needed the grit, the resilience, the toughness, the suck it up mentality to learn probably to survive what we do. But there's a missing half there, right? But if we dismiss that completely, there's a huge loss there. We, we can't ignore the fact that it's dangerous. So Again, with defining terms, you can be firm without being a jerk, but firm is necessary. So it's like, how do you find that balance between that compassion, the empathy, the support, the scaffolding, the building people up? But everyone also has to understand that there is a firmness and there is expectations and there will be hard conversations. I think that's this pendulum swing back and forth, and I'm hoping that it lands in that middle. I do agree 100% with what you're saying. And that's kind of, I think, what my friend was talking to me about, what some of these guys were like. Well, that was just the way they were. And some of these 
guys were just hard guys. They inherited a department from a bunch of hard guys who treated them worse. Some of the stories that we've all heard from the guys who started in the 70s and 80s and the way that they were treated by some of these other guys that were the Vietnam vets and tough as nails and all this stuff, it was significantly different. And I think as we grow, we learn that, like you said, you have to have some of that. You have to have grit. You have to have firmness. You have to be able to bark sometimes because it is necessary. Sometimes you have to put your foot down. Sometimes you have to be hard, but you also have to be empathetic. I think more and more, you know, like you said, the pendulum, we're walking that razor's edge and it's as organizations grow and as individuals grow, if you're introspective in any way, then you'll learn how to do that better. I've learned a ton about management just in the seven months since I promoted that not to say that I've learned all of it, God no, or or anything like that. But there's things that I didn't think I would do that I've caught myself doing. This is a perfect example. Uh, One of the guys that used to work at my department, he's retired years ago. He used to go out and on our truck days, he would white glove the engine and the ambulance and it would just piss everybody off, right? Because he'd go in there and and find dirt and dust and whatever. And hey, y'all aren't done. Get out here. It's, It's just, I said, I'd never do that. That's so shitty. He's just throwing his weight around and it would piss me off. And then we had some issues where some trucks weren't getting clean after I got promoted, where it was somebody didn't clean their truck after a fire. And now I'm in the seat and I caught myself out there late at night looking through the trucks to make sure they were clean. And I was like, oh, shit, this is how this happens. Right. (laughs) It was like this moment of parepity where I was like, oh man, this could swing really hard in the wrong direction and I'm totally not palatable. And like, now I'm that guy or I can figure out how to do this where the same thing's getting done and the work's getting done, but I'm not, I mean, it's just interesting like to catch yourself and you're like, oh man, this is how that happens. Holy crap. Like I'm doing this thing that used to piss me off. But you understand the core of where it came from. So like that that's what I'm driving at, like, and you're driving at too. There's a sweet spot that makes a good leader. There's a sweet spot that makes a good instructor. There's a sweet spot that makes a good firefighter. And it's all about them being able to walk this fine line between the two worlds. I think introspection is the most important aspect of being able to, because we'll never get it right, but at least being able to tune it to where we're at least in the right direction. I think everybody has the best of intentions. It's being willing to make the little adjustments and, and look for help where help is needed and, and sometimes get help that we didn't want to hear. I, I, it's hard to hear stuff about yourself that you don't want to hear. It sucks when somebody's like, hey, man, you're this. And you're like, well, no, I'm not. They're like, nah, yeah, but you are. And you're like, oh, shit, maybe I am. And then you got to go dig deep and, and figure out these things about yourself. And that's how we grow. It's what's the quote. No growth is without pain for man is both the sculptor and the marble. It's that thing where you can dish it out, but you can't take it, right? So a lot of the guys like to dish it out and expect guys that they're that are on the receiving end to take it, but they can't take it themselves. So yeah, that's very true, and I think that's where the like the real asshole thing comes from is where you just bust on people all the time, and somebody busts on you, and you're like, oh, and then you're like, hey, man. <laughs> so <laughs> talk to me about checklists. You mentioned checklists and their importance and how we can. And even acronyms, right? So a lot of people are against acronyms. Again, it's not something we have to, everyone has to be into them or you throw them out because they're all garbage or we all have to adopt them. But there's a benefit to checklists. You mentioned a book called Checklist Manifestos. Maybe expand on that and tell me how you see it fits in with us. Checklist Manifesto 
basically written about the importance of, I guess, a, a root level checklist. But they use the example of two different fields that are terribly complicated, being a pilot and being a surgeon. And so one of them, pilots, they have they live and die by checklists. My brother's in the Coast Guard. He's aviation, and he has – they go through checklists before they take off. And it's it's got to be perfect. Whereas in medicine, it's it's more – you don't really necessarily have a checklist. You're just going through and doing it the way that you were taught. And so in the book, there was a study that had been done where they took and they basically did a, a little five-point checklist on starting a central line. They had a nurse read it off to the doctor while he was performing the central line procedure, and they actually found that the rates of infections dropped because things like cleansing the site were being done not only – like they were never being skipped, but they were actually being done correctly. So the sites were cleansed more appropriately or, or th- little things like that. So they found that when you have a checklist that you follow every time and it's short, sweet, and to the point, then you usually don't miss stuff. And I cover this a lot. Like I went over this two days ago with the paramedic students. We were It was their first day looking at 12 leads and the look of terror out there in all of them. But I was, listen, you're going to look at this exactly the same way every time. I'm going to tell you the way I do it. I don't care the way you do it, but you're going to do it exactly the same way every single time because if you don't, you're going to miss something. And I was like, once you start getting into these nasty looking 12 leads, it's really easy to see elevation or something weird and your eyes draw to it. And that's all you focus on. And then you miss something else. Okay. That's the power of checklists. I took the class i cannot remember who taught it but it's the guy from connecticut and he's a truck captain and it was his truck class i cannot remember his name for the life of me but it was a good class and he brought up checking your apparatus off in the same spot in the same order every morning because then if something's wrong you can catch it because otherwise you might miss something and even if you don't know what it is it's hey, it sounds different today than it normally does, or the ladder is moving different, or whatever it may be. But if you're just sort of doing it in whatever order, then you may miss something. So that's kind of the power to checklists. It's not necessarily that it has to be some crazy, long, implemented checklist that we're going to pull out on scene or whatever. But but if you can build, I think the acronyms maybe have gotten out of control. Some of them are good, but I guess it's sort of the same as like the information. Maybe the cream rises to the top and the ones that are good are going to stick around and the ones that are a mess or unnecessarily unnecessarily are going to go away. I think that's something that's implemented itself a little bit better in the fire service. Like now, when I did my tactical for my promotion, I was allowed to have the, the tactical worksheet with me, whereas years ago, we weren't allowed to do that. You had to just go in there and you had a, a blank piece of paper that you could write on. And now they're like, well, if you're running command, you're going to have a tactical worksheet with you. So we may as well let them have it. Right. So it's stuff like that. But but I'll always say good habits build good firefighters. So if you're doing stuff, if you're checking stuff, if you're if you're going through the motions in the same pattern, that's kind of your plan. And then if you have to deviate from your plan, you've at least got a base that you can start from it and move on from there. Tell me about FEMA and the USAR team. How did that come up for you? How has that experience been and how has it opened your mind to emergency management as a whole? The big thing with the FEMA USAR team was I got in as a medic. I like the disaster medicine aspect of it. I'm still on that team. I think they're in Florida right now, actually. That was sort of one of the moments where suddenly it was like, 
I was in a room surrounded by a bunch of the best of the best. I had all these people I could learn from and it was experienced medics there and medical portion. There's doctors and surgeons and we're all talking about all this stuff. And I'm like, man, these guys are really good. And then I go out in the field and I'm, I'm out there working with like Houston and Dallas and San Antonio truck guys that run their rescues. And that's all they do is technical rescue and they're excellent at it. And so that was really the way it opened my mind a lot. And it was like, man, there's just this wealth of knowledge that I can just sit and these guys like to talk, talk shop because really to get on the team, it's all volunteer. You volunteer for it and then they take you. And so you have to be good at what you do and you have to want it and you have to be willing to make the sacrifices. And so the only really most 90% of the people that are on the team, they're on it because they love this stuff. They think it's awesome. And so there's just a wealth of knowledge to be had and, and exposure is great. And so it's one of those things like people ask me about like, oh, what do you know about Whatever this fire department, I'll be like, I don't know anything about him because the two guys I know are on task force and they're awesome. That may be their whole department or they may be the two best guys there. So it's hard for me to say. The last article I wanted to talk about, I actually didn't get a chance to read it, but the the title really drew me in, but psyched out, taking the crazy out of behavioral emergencies. Really a, uh, a great piece to dive into on the empathy, compassion, understanding end of things. So maybe speak to me about why that topic's important to you and, and how you deliver it. I presented that at the Texas EMS conference last year, and it sort of came from a discussion I had with my wife. My wife is a therapist. She has a master's degree in social work and had to do all these clinical hours and everything. Her and I had a conversation about behavioral emergencies, basically. We were talking about it. I was telling her about, I would, a lot of times, if we had some of these psych patients, I would ask her questions about it because she's obviously more of an expert than I am. I was telling her about some, I don't remember the exact nature of the call or anything, but she was like, it's funny that I went to school for like eight years and you got like one day of training and you're dealing with these crazy people and I don't deal with that many crazy people. I was like, well, yeah, it's because people who are off the rocker, they don't call their therapist. They strip naked and they run down the street or whatever. I was like, that is kind of a good point that we deal with a lot of these complex psychological emergencies and we don't necessarily have that deep of an understanding about exactly what is going on. And so we see things like people who have bipolar disorder and they're in a manic episode. Again, it comes down to the idea that I'm not going to be able to treat any of this stuff or fix their problem. But at least if I understand kind of what's going on, it makes me a lot more empathetic and helps me get them the care that they need. Somebody who's having a massive manic episode and they're talking a thousand words a minute or whatever. They're having word salad and you can't understand them. And it's easy to get frustrated. And what's easy to be too forceful with some of these people and uh, or the cases with depression, where when we run depression, it's usually from somebody who's attempted suicide and having empathy for them and a little bit of how to talk to them and, and some of that stuff. And, and again, we're not going to solve their problems. We're not going to be their therapist and, and we can't be but we can at least understand a little bit about what's going on with them so that, that we can provide the best care possible. Because that's that's ultimately what we're there for is we are a piece of a whole. And if we can be kind to them and get them to the care that they need, that might be the piece that helps them figure it out. That might be you have your suicidal patient and you're kind to them and you get them to the right care, that may be the thing that keeps them from being successful 
the next time or, or coming home and having a successful suicide attempt. That may be what that is. Or helping with the family that may be overwhelmed with their son who's schizophrenic or whatever. Some of these these things. And it just helps to develop a better understanding of exactly what's going on. And, and really, I, I covered a, a handful of the ones that we see, which is schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, and then drug-induced psychosis. And how has that affected how you view the mental health aspect of the job and how your department's approaching it and maybe areas that you can improve? One thing that the city I work for does that's actually been incredibly successful is they have mental health police officers. They respond to all psych emergencies that we go on, and that has been incredibly successful because they are a great resource. They are overseen by a clinical social worker. All of them have gone through special training because they're very proactive with it. And so we've actually seen a decrease in the mental health emergencies that we run because they are able to, and a certain percentage of them, provide and help and educate in a way that was not being done before. I think in the fire service, I I would say that we probably have, I don't know about a mental health problem because that would, in the wording on that almost sounds like mental health, all sorts of different things. But I would say that we probably for sure have a depression problem and a PTSD problem, at least maybe not necessarily PTSD in the way that people think about it. I've heard it called moral trauma, just exposure to grim and grisly things. We see horrible stuff and it it weighs on you. And I don't know if I sent you the copy of the article, but I I wrote another article for Fire Rescue One called It's Okay to Not Be Okay. And I talk about my battles with depression and that I've been on medication for five or six years now and go to therapy. And basically long and short of that one is that it got to a point I've had depression as long as I can remember, but I was always, it was always heavily, overly critical self-talk and worry. So I was never suicidal or anything like that. And so I, I just sort of wrote it off. I was like, oh, I'm not depressed. I'm just, I worry a lot and I'm overly critical of myself, right? And then over time, it started creating problems in my marriage and things like that. And so I went and I saw a therapist and I talked to them and, and they put me on medication, which I was really, really opposed to because just the way the pejorative nature to, to how people discuss being medicated, oh, they pumped me full of meds or whatever, Well, it's the same as like if you had a broken arm and somebody gave you medicine, like it's going to help you get better. Like your antiviral medication for the flu is going to help you get better. The medication is a piece to a whole. You still have to do the other work, but it helps aim you in the right direction. It helps get some of your chemicals in your brain correct that they can't check. And so I've been very open with that. And I wrote that article actually after – a few years ago when the Cowboys quarterback, Dak Prescott, was started opening up about depression. And there was a ESPN reporter who basically slammed him and was like, hey, man, you're the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. You have an image to protect. And it just pissed me off because I was like, man, this is the same kind of toxic mentality towards mental health that has existed in the fire service. People being afraid to talk about shit bothering them. I actually, again, I'm very fortunate. When I first started, there was a a guy, his name's Kelly Varwig. He was one of the best paramedics that I've ever seen. He was phenomenal, but he was one of those guys that everything about him was extreme. Probably the reason he was such a damn good paramedic is because he was just, everything was turned up to 11 with him. He, when I started, had just come off of, he basically took a break he took a, like a leave of absence for a psych leave that he ran like four or five 
horrible calls in a row after years and years and years of flight medicine and, and paramedicine. And then he ran these four calls in a row and they just basically broke him. He came back and was talking about that, openly talking about it with the guys in the department and talked to the new hires and was like, listen, this job, you will have the best days of your life and the worst days of your life. And you have to figure out how to, how to deal with it because it can destroy you. I thought that was great, man. Here's a guy who's 20 year guy up here talking about depression and, and seeing bad stuff and, and how to deal with it. And then I think it's easy to associate some of that stuff with calls. It's like, oh, somebody made a bad call. And so we check on them, which is great. I think we're getting better at that. My previous lieutenant was fantastic at that. If we ran a bad call the next day, he hit you up, hey, man, everything good. But I don't know that it's always the calls, right? And, the, and so that's where I think it gets to be difficult is people can just be depressed because they're depressed. And so I put that article out talking about it a little bit just to, to open up the discussion that, hey, it's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put myself out there. And then when I was still on B-Shift, our battalion chief, it was interesting. He was talking about it was like firefighter mental health month or something. I don't remember, but he was reading all these statistics about it and talking about depression with everybody and firefighter suicide and all this other stuff and all the statistics that more firefighters die by their own hand than in the line of duty, which is terrifying. And we've seen it with military veterans and and all sorts of stuff like that. And I told him, I was like, well, I have depression. And he kind of laughed. And I was like, I'm I'm not joking. He's like, oh, I I thought you were kidding. I was like, I'm not. He's like, I never would have guessed that you had depression because you're super talkative and energetic. And you, I was like, well, yeah, because it doesn't present itself like the depressed emo kid hiding in his bedroom all the time. And so he and I talked about it at length. He asked me, he said, hey, would you mind talking to the shift about it? He's like, obviously, you don't have to, but I'm trying to raise awareness. And I think if you talked about it, it makes it a little more personal, right? Because now it's it's local. And I was like, yeah, sure. And so I sent that article out to all the guys on B-Shift and I gave like kind of a little explanation of it. And within a few weeks, it was pretty interesting to hear the number of people reach out to me and talk about, hey, I've been on antidepressants for years and I never told anybody. And I've had guys call me crying in the middle of the night and say, hey, man, I don't know what's up. I just started crying. Everything's fine in my life. And I don't know. Or guys call me and say, hey, I think I might be feeling a little depressed. What should I do? It's pretty interesting that once I put it out there, a lot more people than I would have suspected said, hey, man, I kind of have some of the same problems or I also am medicated and and do this. And, and, And so it's it's pretty interesting. So that's what makes me think that I hate to use the word problem because it makes it sound too negative, but I do think there is a, a maybe not completely unchecked, but I think that the way that we look at and treat depression and mental health amongst each other is something that is starting to show itself a little bit, but is not nearly where it needs to be and isn't quite out in the, the public discussion as much as it could be. Yeah, just like being in a class, I think we touched on that earlier, and not wanting to put your hand up and ask a question because you don't want it to sound stupid. But if you ask it, there's probably five or six people in the room that have the exact same question. They feel the same way and don't want to ask it, right? So yeah, you don't want to be weak, right? You don't want people to, oh man, this guy's depressed. He's weak. That's not the case. But but in your head, I mean, that's the downside to it is you feel depressed, and so you don't want to talk about it because you feel down, right? But funnily enough, we train on writ. And we train on Maydays and we understand that 
things could happen to us that are out of our control and now we need to be helped by our colleagues. We don't see that person as having that issue, either medical or a collapse or whatever that occurs to them where they get trapped. We don't see it as being weak. We just see as something happened to them and then we need to help them out. So maybe we need to translate that into this arena as well. And and then you maybe even tie in when you get on the job and you say, I want to help people. Well, that includes the people you work with. That is a fantastic analogy. I've never thought about it that way, but I think RIT and Mayday, that's, I mean, that's a really, really good way to put it because we push that. Call the Mayday early. If you think you're in trouble, call it early. And there's no shame in calling a Mayday and that's what the root team's for and all this other stuff. I think we accept that it could happen to any of us, right? We understand like that instance could happen to any of us. So we're good with it. But I think maybe that's what we understand. We have to understand with mental health. So it could also happen to any of us because I struggle with it too. That is fantastic. I, I really like that. You can steal it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you want to touch on, man? It's been really great talking to you. I'm glad we were finally able to hammer it out. I know we had some issues making it happen. No, it's it's been good. It's been a good discussion. You have like a fantastic podcast voice. I feel like you should read books uh, for Audible or something. Well, hey, if, <laughs> like, if, you, if you rate it, I'll read it for you. How about that? <laughs> okay. Anytime I've listened to your podcast, I always think, man, this guy's voice is just, it's designed for radio. I'm telling you. Fantastic, so, man. Thanks. Well, maybe I shouldn't be in firefighting. Maybe that's, maybe that's my shortfall. Maybe I should actually be in radio. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Not switching the slate. Um, yeah you're doing both now you got a podcast that's like yeah best of both worlds yeah 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 how can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out to you so i have a facebook because i'm 40 my name adam parkhurst i have another facebook page performance culture where sometimes i post stuff i don't keep up with it as much as i should adam parkhurst on facebook or i have an email address a parkhurst 139 at yahoo.com if anybody wants to shoot me an email That'd be fantastic. I'll whatever you want, send me some questions or whatever. So that's that's really about it. Awesome. I'll link all your articles too in the show notes so people can find them. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great talking to you, man. Really appreciate your time. Man, you too. 